The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On Saturday, August 14th, 2010, Sally Challen was with her husband, Richard, packing up their family home in Claygate, Surrey, England. The couple had been married for 31 years and were preparing to rent out their house so they could embark on a six-month adventure in Australia. That is, until later that afternoon, when Sally made a startling discovery, one that would spark a chain of events permanently placing the couple's vacation plans on hold and forever altering the Challen family's future. Join me now as we take a look into the life of Sally Challen, a loving mother and wife who was held prisoner in her marriage for decades. We'll look into the devastating impact of coercive control, how public awareness and education have become a catalyst for bringing about social change and what it finally took for Sally Challen to begin her long path to freedom. Georgina Sally Jenny was born in Walton-on-Thames, England, in 1954, and raised in an upper-class traditional family. Sally was a surprise baby, with four older brothers, well into their teens, and away at boarding school when she came along. Both of Sally's parents were born in India, and her father was a brigadier in the Royal Engineers. Sadly, when Sally was just five years old, her father suffered a major heart attack and passed away. A devastating loss for the entire family, but one that deeply affected Sally in particular, creating a void she struggled to fill for years. Despite a growing acceptance towards women in the workplace in the 60s, Sally's mother held the strong opinion that Sally shouldn't pursue a higher education or career. She believed her daughter needed to focus on finding a decent man to marry and then devote her life to him. So that's exactly what Sally tried to do. In 1971, when Sally was just 15 years old and working at a newsagent one Saturday, a dashing charismatic car salesman waltzed in and they suddenly got to chatting. Although Richard Challen was in his 20s, young Sally swiftly became enamored with him and thought he was quite sophisticated. It didn't take long before Sally had traded in going out with her girlfriends after school for going over to Richard's house to cook and clean for him. She wanted to show him how capable she was at making him happy, but her mother and brothers didn't approve. Her mother felt Richard wasn't their sort, and her older brothers felt the same. Regardless, Richard had become someone Sally decided she wanted to marry and have children with. He had started to fill a void that had been left after her father died, and he was the stable male authority she had longed for. In an attempt to break the couple up, Sally's mother sent her away to boarding school in Brussels, but the distance did little to extinguish the flames between the couple. Sally continued to communicate with Richard through letters and by phone, and a few months later, she left school for good and began working as a secretary, focusing the rest of her time on Richard. Sally's mother 
became horrified when at 17 years old, her daughter became pregnant. Richard also made it abundantly clear that he wasn't pleased about the pregnancy either. Feeling as though she had no other option, Sally had an abortion. When her brothers confronted Richard about the pregnancy and abortion, he responded by saying he wasn't her first and that the baby could have been anyone's. Continuing on into the early years of their relationship, Sally was at times suspicious of Richard's behavior and wondered if he was seeing other women on the side. Richard, of course, always denied her accusations and often lashed out at her for making such ridiculous suggestions in the first place. Once, when she was in her 20s, Richard became so enraged by her questioning that he dragged her down a flight of stairs and threw her out the front door. That altercation left Sally feeling so terrified that she dreaded the thought of ever confronting him again in the future. In 1979, Sally put all her doubts regarding Richard Challen aside and decided to marry him. That is, only after she signed a prenuptial agreement protecting Richard's assets. And according to Dellen Blackmore, the best man at the wedding, Sally's family's enthusiasm towards Richard hadn't grown over the years, putting a bit of a damper on what was meant to be a joyous occasion. But despite a bit of a rocky start, the couple's marriage appeared to be happy from the outside looking in, and their lives were quite successful. Richard eventually came to own his own car dealership in Richmond, Surrey. They had two sons, James and David, and their family settled into a beautiful home on Ruxley Ridge in Claygate, Surrey. Sally absolutely loved being a mother and doted as much on her sons as she did Richard. And for the first 10 years of his life, the challenge's youngest son, David, remembered life being good. He recalled snuggling up with his dad on the couch watching TV and his father taking him and his older brother, James, go-karting. The family going on vacations to places like Disneyland Life just felt normal, but behind closed doors, there was much more going on that the young boys were being protected from. Over the years, Richard had become hell-bent on controlling every aspect of Sally's life. While they were out at restaurants, he would dictate what she could eat and who she could speak to. Later on, it was finances. Although money was never a concern for the challenge, once the boys got older, Sally took an administrative role with the Surrey Police Federation. That's when Richard began taking the household expenses from Sally's paychecks and using his income to foot the bill for his own pleasures. David recalls his dad buying himself a Ferrari, a Cartier watch, and going to Grand Prix events, leaving Sally with nothing to spend on herself. Even if she wanted to save money or go out with friends, it was never an option. Richard even went as far as to restrict Sally's movements, dictating when she was allowed to use the car and demanding to know where she was at all times. He also controlled every aspect of their sexual relationship, which was completely based on his own fulfillment. According to Sally, she would be sent upstairs to shower before they were intimate because he didn't like how she smelled. He also had her get ready in private because he didn't like to see her without clothes on. The hurtful criticism Sally was subjected to in private didn't stop there. She was also constantly ridiculed in front of their children, friends, family, and even strangers. Richard bullied and humiliated Sally for years until any remnants of self-esteem were completely worn away. A friend of the couple recalled how Richard sent them a Christmas card of himself on the hood of a luxury car straddled by two topless women. Richard was taking the stereotype of sleazy car salesmen depicted in Hollywood films to a whole new level. 
On the side, Richard often went to brothels, and as the years passed, his cheating became more and more brazen. He had numerous phones and online profiles on popular dating sites so he could connect with women. It became increasingly difficult for Sally to look the other way and to pretend that everything was fine, especially the time she saw him pull out of a brothel right near her work. But whenever Sally confronted Richard about his infidelity, even when she caught him red-handed, he would tell her, You're going mad, Sally. You're making it all up. You're going mad. What he was doing was gaslighting, a common tactic used by domestic abusers because it undermines a person's sense of self-belief and is used to train a partner not to challenge them and to feel less confident. And Richard's tactic worked for a while. Sally would often tell her sons she questioned her sanity and wondered if their father was really even cheating. Maybe it was all in her head and she was going crazy, she thought. Records from her doctor's visits also revealed the physical signs of stress on Sally because of the physical and emotional abuse. Sleeplessness, low appetite, early waking, and domestic stress. To many who knew the couple, Richard treated Sally terribly and as if she belonged to him. Sally, on the other hand, was known for being loving, kind, calm, and accepting, which is why it made it extremely difficult for her to even consider leaving her husband. She had spent the majority of her life devoted to him, becoming emotionally and financially dependent on him over the years, and he had successfully created a culture of fear and dependency, convincing her that his behavior and treatment of her was completely normal. Sally always did her best to shield her two sons from their marital problems, but as they got older, even her best efforts couldn't disguise their father's controlling behavior. In an interview with the UK Guardian, James said, The atmosphere changed when my father got home from work. Everybody was on edge. Dinner was generally uncomfortable because of arguments over whether my mother had cooked something to his liking. If he was watching TV and we were talking, he'd just turn the volume up and we weren't allowed to use the TV when he wasn't there because it would waste its limited lifespan. Even though those who loved Sally convinced her that after many failed attempts to leave her husband, she needed to get him out of her life once and for all. Her sons were adamant that their mother had to stay away from their father. They realized that decades of abuse had to end. On November of 2009, after seeing a televised raid of a massage parlor Richard had gone to, Sally finally decided to move out of their one million pound family home. She used inheritance money to purchase a nearby home for her and her son David while her other son, James, moved in with his girlfriend. Sally started divorce proceedings, but after years of being controlled by Richard and emotionally dependent on him, it was impossible for her to break ties with her husband. She later explained, On the day I left, I didn't want to go. I still loved him. We'd been together for so long. Forty years. He was a part of me. Slowly, Sally started seeing Richard again, at first keeping it from her children, her friends, and family as long as possible. When everyone eventually found out, her children were heartbroken and concerned, but unsurprised. Sally's son David said his mother didn't know how to survive in a world without Richard. He was her oxygen, and he made it that way. He controlled the world around her at a young age. My father was a male authority figure for her. He designed the world around what he thought it should be for her, and that was him. Sally's loved ones warned her to stay away from Richard, but she shut them out. Sally believed she couldn't survive without him, so she did everything in her power to win him back. The reconciliation, however, was rocky. Richard met up with women he found through dating sites he frequented and Sally was sure he was having multiple affairs. 
Consumed with learning about his infidelities, Sally asked a neighbor to spy on her husband. And by 2010, Sally had gained remote access to Richard's texts, voicemail, and Facebook messages. She cross-referenced the names of the women he was in contact with against the profiles on the dating sites in hopes to learn exactly who he was seeing and when. In June of 2010, Richard agreed Sally could move back in, but only if she signed a very one-sided post-nuptial agreement. The agreement removed Sally's rights to the Challen family home and other previously shared assets. It also set some specific and controlling requirements, including Sally was never allowed to smoke again or to interrupt her husband. On August 2010, the couple officially halted their divorce proceedings and made plans to rent out the family home for six months and head to Australia to rekindle their marriage. However, Sally, then 56, and 61-year-old Richard were still living apart. Sally was still filled with suspicion that her husband was cheating on her. Plus, she was upset about the lopsided post-nuptial agreement Richard demanded she sign. On the morning of Saturday, August 14th, Sally drove to the family home to help her husband pack up the house and clear out the garbage. By mid-afternoon, Richard was hungry, but there was no food in the house, so he sent Sally out in the rain to pick up a few things for lunch. At around 3.30 p.m., Sally left to get the groceries, but she wondered if Richard had an ulterior motive for getting her out of the house. When Sally returned from the store, she noticed the telephone had been moved. When Richard stepped out of the room, Sally called the last number dialed. The phone was answered by one of the women Richard had met on the dating site. Sally questioned Richard about the incident, but he refused to explain his actions. Instead, he coldly replied, Don't question me. Sally then calmly cooked Richard some bacon and eggs while he sat at the table at the Eden kitchen. As Richard dug into his lunch, Sally grabbed a hammer she had brought with her in her purse, approached Richard from behind, and violently struck him over the head with the hammer 18 times. During the attack, Richard held his hands and arms up in self-defense, trying to curb the blows. Sally realized as her husband laid bloody on the floor, that he was still clinging to life and shoved a dish towel in his mouth. When he was no longer breathing, in a state of shock, Sally wrapped his body in blankets and old curtains, put a pillow under his head so he would be comfortable, and cleaned up the dishes from lunch. Before she left, she placed a note on Richard's body that read, I love you, Sally. On her way home, she bought some cigarettes, no longer concerned about what the postnuptial agreement had dictated. Once home, she drank some wine, smoked, and composed a suicide note that she took to the Challen family home and left it by her husband's body in the kitchen. The note read, Richard said he would take me back if I signed a postnuptial agreement. I said I would and we both saw solicitors yesterday. I then found out he was seeing someone and sleeping with them and had no intention of taking me back. It was all a game, so he could get everything. He was going to get me to sign and then issue divorce proceedings. I can't live without him. He said it would take time, but he felt the same. Now I find he is seeing women and sleeping with them. He did this in order to get his own back on me. All these prostitutes and other women, how could he? Please look after David, James, and Peppy. I'm sorry, but I cannot live without Richard. 
all my love, Sally. She decided to spend one more evening in her home with her son David before taking her life. She managed to put on a facade of normalcy and made the most of her final night with her son. The next morning, she dropped David off at work. As he exited the car, Sally said, You know I love you, don't you? David, sensing something was off, but not sure what, replied, I love you too, and headed into the office. Intent on committing suicide, Sally headed to a nearby parking garage to jump off the top level, but when she got there, it was closed. Instead, she drove 70 miles to Beachy Head in East Sussex, where she could jump to her death from a 530-foot cliff into the sea. While standing atop the cliff, Sally called her cousin and admitted to killing Richard. She also mentioned where she was and that she was about to commit suicide. Sally's cousin frantically called the police and a chaplain. Once the police and chaplain arrived on the scene, they spent many long hours trying to talk Sally down from the cliff. During this time, Sally admitted to the chaplain and suicide response team that she had killed her husband. Sally told them, I killed Richard with a hammer. I hit him lots of times. If I cannot have Richard, no one can. Sally also informed the police negotiator that Richard had told her to treat his infidelity like a bereavement and to get over it. She also admitted to accessing Richard's messages and voicemails. She even revealed she had entered the family home to spy on him. From the edge of the cliff, Sally told the police that when she learned Richard was still in contact with other women and was making plans to meet one of them, she flipped out and killed him. Sally felt like she had been treated appallingly badly by Richard for years and that his terrible treatment of her had made her crazy. She explained, I should be put in a padded cell somewhere because I have gone completely off my rocker. I'm just so very depressed. Sally was finally convinced to move away from the cliff when the negotiator told her that she'd be leaving her sons alone if she killed herself. They wouldn't have any parents. That thought broke her heart, so she stepped away from the cliff's edge and was arrested for murder of her husband. During the subsequent police interview, Sally told investigators that she believed her marriage was generally happy, but that Richard demanded everything beyond his terms. Sally said she did all she could to please him, but he was relentlessly critical of her appearance, intelligence, and behavior. Sally also told the police that Richard had been unfaithful for years and detailed how he often visited brothels. Sally struggled to put into words the immense distress her husband's ongoing infidelity had caused her. She also explained that she had tried to divorce Richard, but soon learned she couldn't live without him. She knew the agreement he wanted her to sign was unfair, but she decided it was worth it if it meant saving their marriage. But on the day of the murder, Sally was struck that her husband intended on seeing other women and that his agreement to reconcile had been nothing more than a sham to get her to sign the agreement. Given Sally's open confession and the piles of evidence they had accumulated, the investigators were confident she would be found guilty once the case went to trial. Ten months after Richard was murdered, Sally's seven-day trial began at the Guilford Crown Court. She was charged with murder and faced a life sentence. She attempted to plead guilty to manslaughter on the grounds 
of diminished responsibility, but that wasn't accepted by the Crown. The prosecution argued that Sally was a jealous, obsessed woman who stalked her husband. They said she counted Richard's Viagra pills and tracked his movements to prove she was right about his continuous cheating. She was a dangerous woman who felt she had been wronged, and she went to Richard's house that day to kill him out of anger. The prosecutor highlighted how Sally had first lied to the police about bringing the hammer with her to the home, and suggested this was an indication of there being premeditation. Sally had wanted her husband dead and had followed through with her plan. A forensic psychiatrist who examined Sally testified for the prosecution. He argued that Sally had not been suffering from any mental illness or abnormality of mind at any time before she killed Richard. Although the expert conceded Sally had low self-esteem, was experiencing marital difficulties, and had a drinking problem at the time of the murder. She didn't display the classic symptoms of depression. In fact, Sally had been performing well at work, looked mentally and physically well, and those around her didn't notice any indications of a mental disorder. And of course, the prosecutor ensured Sally's confession of killing Richard was heard in court. Members of the Beachy Head suicide prevention team recounted to a quiet courtroom how Sally had told them, I killed Richard with a hammer. I hit him lots of times. If I can't have him, no one can. The defense called its own forensic psychiatrist to the stand. They testified that after examining Sally, it was clear she had experienced a depressive disorder with persisting depressive symptoms in the three to four weeks leading up to Richard's murder, and that she had suffered a depressive episode of moderate severity which amounted to an abnormality of mind. Sally's two sons, her cousin, several friends, and even Sally herself testified in her defense. James and David outlined to the jury the ways in which their father was manipulative, controlling, and unfaithful. They also explained how their father used the gaslighting technique to get their mother to question her own sanity. In their opinion, their mother was an abused woman who had lived through decades of hellish treatment and had finally snapped. Many of Sally's friends and her cousin also took the stand and told the court that Richard was mentally abusive. Many of the witnesses called by the defense shared that Sally had been depressed and out of sorts during the time she was attempting to reconcile with Richard because she was suspicious he was being unfaithful. Not only did this break Sally's heart, but it also ruined what was left of her self-worth. When Sally testified, she described to the jury how many years of psychological abuse had accumulated in her actions on August 14th. She spoke of Richard's desire to control her and how much his infidelities had tormented her over the years. She explained she was extremely depressed throughout the decades she'd spent with her husband, but that neither medication nor counseling seemed to help. By the summer of 2010, Sally said she may have been doing well at work and everything might have seemed good on the surface. But after nine months of living apart from Richard, she felt depressed and flat. When she murdered her husband, Sally maintained she was not of right mind, and she didn't actually recall committing the act itself. On June 23, 2011, the jury ultimately sided with the prosecution. Sally was convicted of murder. Three days later, Judge Christopher Critchlow sentenced Sally to life in prison, of which she had to serve at least 22 years before being eligible for parole. During her sentencing, the judge told Sally she had been eaten up by jealousy over Richard's friendships with other women, and this all-consuming jealousy and anger drove her to murder her husband. The court felt 
The length of Sally's sentence needed to reflect the seriousness of her premeditated actions. Roughly five months after Sally was sentenced, her time in prison was somewhat reduced. The courts decided she would have to serve 18, not 22 years before being considered for parole. Still, Sally's loved ones were devastated and their long fight for freedom began. In December of 2015, Sally's defense team and her sons received a glimmer of hope when coercive control became a criminal offense. When Parliament enacted Section 76 of the Serious Crime Act 2015, it criminalized controlling or coercive behavior in an intimate or family relationship in England and Wales. Women's Aid, an organization in England that fights to empower women who have experienced abuse, has stressed that abuse is not always physical. In fact, fewer than 5% of all domestic violence assaults involve physical injury. According to Women's Aid, coercive control is defined as an act or a pattern of acts of assault, threats, humiliation, and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten their victim. This controlling behavior is designed to make a person dependent by isolating them from support, exploiting them, depriving them of independence and regularity of their everyday behavior. A list of common coercive control behaviors reads like a recap of Richard's treatment of Sally during their decades-long marriage. To Sally's sons, it was readily apparent their father's treatment of their mother was a textbook example of coercive control. David said when he compared his parents' relationship to the definition of coercive control, it was tick, 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 just controlling every facet of her mind. It was almost like she was a robot and he punched in the commands of what she had to do. Sally's advocates hoped that the new law could be leveraged to secure her release from prison. She had been subjected to years of coercive control, but this was not taken into consideration during her trial. Her sons believed the new law enabled a better understanding of domestic abuse and provided both them and countless victims with a language to better discuss the issue. Sally's son David explained that for almost a decade, my brother James and I have been forced to accept a false narrative of our father's death that depicted our mother as a controlling and jealous lover who planned to kill our father. Anyone standing up who had anything worth saying was not saying enough or not feeling as if they had enough time or not being asked the right questions. She was being painted as vengeful and jealous. David stressed that they didn't think their mother's actions were justified. They loved their father and didn't think he deserved to be murdered. But David said it was crucial that their mother's crime be judged properly. She was psychologically manipulated and that is what coercive control is. Sally's solicitor, Harriet Wistridge, who worked with the organization Justice for Women, told the media the new law should be considered new evidence in the case. She said, We're arguing for the first time that the framework for understanding domestic abuse that set out in coercive control and controlling behavior, which became law in 2015, provides a way of understanding Sally's actions which would support a defense of provocation. Our argument is that if this evidence is allowed as fresh evidence, it renders the murder conviction unsafe. Therefore, that murder conviction should be quashed. When the Court of Appeal heard Sally's appeal in 2019, the case was such a media sensation that a panel of judges had requested a larger courtroom to accommodate the crowds who had come to witness the proceedings. The court could decide to uphold the conviction, quash the current conviction, and order a new trial, 
or reduce the conviction to manslaughter and release Sally with time served. All eyes were focused on the court and how it would judge the evidence in a critical case for abuse survivors. Sally's defense team put forward two grounds of appeal. First, the fresh evidence on coercive control and the fresh psychiatrist evidence that support the proposition that at the time of the murder, the appellant was suffering from an abnormality of mind. Had expert evidence on coercive control been available at the time of the trial, the jury may have reached a different conclusion on diminished responsibility. And second, the fresh evidence also goes to the issue of provocation in that it helps establish the appellant was provoked to kill the deceased because of his controlling and coercive behavior. The defense made coercive control the centerpiece of its appeal. Professor Evan Stark, a retired forensic social worker and expert on this type of abuse, spoke on behalf of the defense. He explained that coercive control is designed to subjugate and dominate, not merely to hurt. It achieves compliance essentially by making victims afraid and by depriving them of rights, resources, and liberties, without which they cannot effectively defend themselves escape, refuse demands, or resist. In response, the prosecution argued that at Sally's first trial, the jury was more than equipped to understand Richard's poor treatment of his wife and to weigh that in their decision. The prosecutor said the phrase, controlling and coercive behavior, was nothing but a new phrase to describe an age-old problem that was already well understood. And the prosecutor added, the topic is not one upon which juries require expert guidance. According to the prosecution, there was ample evidence that showed Sally was coherent and thinking logically before, during, and after the killing. There was no sign Sally was afflicted with any kind of mental disorder. In fact, she seemed to have been functioning at a high level in all areas of her life when she decided to murder her husband. After careful consideration, on February 28, 2019, the Court of Appeal quashed Sally's conviction. The three-panel judge said evidence provided by a psychiatrist showed that Sally was suffering from two mental disorders at the time of the killing. The fact that this information was not available at the time of her trial, undermined her safety of her conviction. Sally, who was present in court via a video link from prison, was visibly emotional when she heard the court's decision. And Sally's family, friends, and other supporters who had packed into the public gallery cheered and applauded when the decision was handed down. However, a stunned silence fell over the crowd when the judges continued. They didn't accept Sally's manslaughter plea. Instead, the panel called for a retrial. Sally and her sons wept when they realized her quest for freedom was far from over. Sally's solicitor put a positive spin on the situation and celebrated the Court of Appeals' decision at a press conference. She underscored how the decision should be considered a victory, as it raised public awareness about coercive control. We want to say that this is an amazing victory. It was always going to be an incredibly difficult case. Overturning a criminal conviction in any case is always an extremely high hurdle, and few cases succeed. So we're, we're delighted um, with, the, with the decision of the Court of Appeal. And more importantly, I think through the campaigning and support, so many people and so many survivors of coercive control, so many women's organisations that support victims of coercive control and through tireless work of justice for women and the absolutely amazing David, who has uh, just just so powerfully spoken out on behalf of his mother. We're pleased that 
whatever might be the ultimate outcome, we've managed to raise awareness and a, a, a much deeper understanding of the concept of coercive control, which is such a recent one. Sally's son, David, appreciated the attention his mother's case has given to the damaging, long-term impacts of coercive control. For David, though, it was clear the outcome was not yet a victory. At a press conference, he said he would not rest until his mother was no longer facing a new trial and she was released from prison. As a family, we're overjoyed. Our mother's story gets to be heard and given a fair trial as opposed to a trial that we believe she wasn't afforded the full protection of a, a victim of domestic violence. It's been a long road. It's been eight years to get here, eight years to find a, a language to speak out about what's happened as a family. It's been really tough and emotionally it's going to be a little bit tougher for a little bit longer, but it's all for our mother. And as, as an understanding for the events that led to our father's death, we'd like to obviously say a massive thank you to the domestic violence sector and organisations like Women's Aid, Refuge and Safe Lives who got behind our campaign and, and really sprouted an, an, an amazing awareness for coercive control and, and the effects it has psychologically on victims, which I think is, is greatly underreported and um, not recognised in a lot of the courts. And hopefully our hope is that this re child doesn't happen our mother has served eight years she was 65 yesterday we don't want her to serve any more time she's not a murderer today that's what's been quashed she's not a murderer today and that's the most amazing thing that's been recognized we really want her to be free to live a full life to live a happy life to live an independent life that she's not lived even since the age of 15 and now she's 65 and we want her to you know be with the family again and i think everyone can respect that and everyone can understand that and this doesn't stop here and we're going to keep going sally was set to face a second murder trial in july of 2019 and in response, her supporters took swift action. Sally's sons started the Justice for Sally campaign and began a Change.org petition to try to get the Crown Prosecution Service to drop the retrial and release their mother. During the campaign, Sally's supporters emphasized that it was time to stop discriminating against women and to take domestic abuse seriously. The campaign to free Sally was supported by Justice for Women and other domestic violence organizations in the UK, as well as many members of Parliament. Justice for Women drew attention to how the Crown Prosecution Service had a long history of showing leniency to men who were domestic abusers. Now it was time to offer the same consideration to abusive survivors who stood up to their partners. James and David argued it was not in the public's interest for their mother to face a retrial. They suggested that their mother was not a violent, career criminal, and that public money shouldn't be wasted. Sally had already spent nine years in prison. This punishment was enough. James and David added that a retrial would re-traumatize them, as well as all of Sally and Richard's loved ones, who had already lost so much. The Justice for Sally campaign garnered significant publicity and resulted in over 17,000 signatures being garnered and brought to the Crown Prosecution Service. Sally's supporters demanded that the retrial be dropped and she be released from prison. It appears as though the public pressure worked. Ultimately, the Crown Prosecution Service announced it would drop the retrial, accept Sally's manslaughter plea and release her, with time already served. Sixty-five-year-old Sally Challen was finally released from prison, and her and her son David stopped to speak to reporters about the verdict. I just wanted to say how happy I am, and I want to thank my legal team and all my family who stood behind me and stood with me through all of this. As a family, we are overjoyed with today's verdict. We have enjoyed, endured nine years of this. Today recognizes 
and here's a case of detailing 40 years of coercive control by our father. As a family, we have sought justice and to understand the events, to stop lives being lost and for victims to be recognised. Later at a press conference, Sally thanked all those who stood by her through the years, and she stressed how other women she had met in prison needed assistance. Like her, they were victims of coercive control, were pushed over the edge, and had been sentenced with murder instead of manslaughter. I'd like to thank from the bottom of my heart Harriet and Claire and all those around her who have worked tirelessly to get me where I am today. It's been a long road. They have served my sentence with me. Their support and visits have kept me going in what has been a long and terrible nine years. Many other women who are victims of abuse as I was are in prison today serving life sentences and I know this because I've met them. They have suffered abuse and other miscarriages of justice and should be serving sentences for manslaughter, not murder. After the press conference, David talked to reporters about his mother's chilling confession that she still loved Richard and missed her husband. David explained she still loves him, and that sounds bizarre, but that's coercive control. She was designed to love one man from the age of 15 to 56. It's deep. We don't know what to do with that. My father's not alive anymore, and he still has power over her. Sally's release is often considered a result of the law being changed in 2015 and is categorized as a landmark victory for survivors of coercive control. However, it should be acknowledged that both the Crown of Appeal and the Crown Prosecution Service stressed that their decision was based solely on Sally's mental health condition at the time of the murder. The Crown Prosecution Service noted that new psychiatric assessments of Sally had concluded that when she killed her husband, she was suffering from an abnormality of the mind that substantially impaired her mental responsibilities for her acts. These evaluations were significantly different from previous expert evidence, and as a result, it was determined there was no longer significant evidence to proceed with murder charges. Therefore, Sally's manslaughter plea was accepted. In both of these rulings, Sally's release had nothing to do with the years of coercive control she had suffered. It was not even entertained if Richard's behavior may have exasperated or even caused Sally's mental disorders. It may be relatively simple to change domestic abuse laws, but it's another thing entirely to overcome deeply ingrained myths and attitudes about domestic abuse and actually spark change in the legal system. Regardless, most of Sally's supporters considered the outcome of her case a victory for coercive control survivors. After his mother was released, Sally's son David tweeted, As a family, we are overjoyed at today's verdict and that it has brought an end to the suffering we have endured together for the past nine years. Our story has become the landmark case society needs to recognize the true severity of coercive control, reflecting on what needs to change for people to be empowered to free themselves from abuse. Sally noted that education could be the answer. She said, a lot of the problem is that women don't know they're in a relationship of coercive control. It's family, friends and relatives who do see it. They have to speak to that person and convince them to leave. They don't seem to be able to break that tie. It's a very strong tie, and the women are very vulnerable. Sally also mentioned that schools should teach children about coercive control, as boys, as well as girls, suffer from it. They're damaged, and it's damage done to them for the rest of their lives. Teachers also should be aware and look around their classrooms and make the children aware of what could happen. In the end, 
even though Sally was not freed because of the new course of control law. The publicity her case received was in itself a landmark event that shone a light on the dark corners of psychological abuse. Justice for Women reports that since Sally's case had been covered by the media, several other women have reached out to the organization for help. Perhaps now is the time that survivors of all these types of abuse will begin to have their voices heard. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following Patreon supporters, Jessica, Megan C., Michaela R., and a special thank you to Sinclair L. and Maggie James. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E